Welcome back to this Tuesday's Across the Movie Aisle, presented by Bulwark Plus. I'm your host, Sonny Bunch, culture editor of The Bulwark. I'm joined, as always, by the award-winning Alyssa Rosenberg of The Washington Post and Peter Suderman of Reason Magazine. Alyssa, Peter, how are you today? I am dandy. I am happy to be talking about movies with friends. First up in controversies and non-troversies, we're going to talk about one of the biggest box office surprises of the year so far. Uh, well, one one of the biggest. I mean, uh, you know, I, I think it's a pretty big surprise. I know lots of people I saw voicing surprise. Um, assuming, of course, that you don't have a 12-year-old boy in the house. Uh, I speak of Five Nights at Freddy's, which shocked some box office watchers by grossing around $80 million this weekend, despite the fact that it was debuting in theaters and on Peacock, Universal streaming app, simultaneously. Uh, there are several different angles to consider here, one of which is that this video game-based movie is practically invisible IP to anyone over a certain age. Something like 94% of the audience was under the age of 35. 81% was between 13 and 24. These are splits that are practically unheard of. Um, that helps explain why box office watchers didn't really see this one coming. We're simply too old. We're out of the demo. Uh, combined with the huge performance of the Super Mario Brothers movie, previous wins for the Sonic franchise, et cetera, et cetera, it looks like video games are the new comic book universe's franchises to be mined for box office gold until those lines run dry and then you mine them a little bit further and the things get worse and worse and people stop showing up and we do the cycle all over again. Now, the second <laughs> big question is how much money did Universal leave on the table by putting this thing on Peacock simultaneously to theaters? Deadline thinks it might be around 10 million. Sure, why not? That's a number. Uh, I'm more skeptical. This was very clearly something fans wanted to appreciate together, and the audience response was huge. It got an A- from CinemaScore audiences, uh, and horror movies always do worse on CinemaScore, so that A- might as well be an A+. And it is 88% fresh with audiences on Rotten Tomatoes, compared to just 26% fresh with critics. Um, I'll be curious to see if Universal added any Peacock signups as a result of this movie, but regardless, look, $80 million, $80 million. This movie was not very expensive or very good, apparently. You know, I'm, again, not the target demo here. Didn't even go see it. So mainly, this is a reminder that there's rarely a good reason to keep a movie out of theaters and put it only on streaming. Obviously, this is a huge hit, but consider something like Killers of the Flower Moon, which has not been, frankly, just just straightforwardly has not been. It opened to 23 million. It dropped 60% this weekend. It's going to get nowhere near the 400 million or whatever Apple would need to recoup its cost on the picture if it was just trying to recoup the cost of the picture through box office receipts. But it doesn't make sense to think of the movie that way. Apple wanted to make it regardless of profit and loss because they wanted to be in the Martin Scorsese business. The hope beyond possibility of Oscar night glory is that people will flock to Apple TV plus for the nearly three and a half hour picture. Signups there are, are better than ticket sales, really, whatever. Any money that Apple makes on the movie in the theaters is just gravy. And it's why I've never entirely understood Netflix's hesitance to go all in or at least like partly in on theatrical releases for their biggest releases. Movies like Red Notice or David Fincher's The Killer, which is out uh, this week in theaters and uh, is going to be on the service next week. Last year's Glass Onion shows that they can make some money via theatrical release of these pictures. Netflix's business model doesn't necessitate them making all of their money via theatrical releases. Feels like they're just leaving cash on the table. Peter, uh, what do you make of Five Nights at Freddy's and its shocking success? Yeah, like you said, there are two stories here. One is the story of, oh my gosh, 
The Youngs came out to a movie. First of all, that's surprising. And it was a movie they could have seen on streaming. Frankly, they could have watched it on their phones. And that's even more surprising given that this franchise, the IP that this is based on, started on people's phones. So for those who are not video gamers, Five Nights at Freddy's is probably the single biggest franchise in video games for uh, mobile devices, for phone devices, right? So not for consoles. I'm not talking about Xboxes or, or Playstations. I'm talking about iPhones and whatever else you view, the Androids and that sort of thing. And for the last nearly a decade, uh, the first one came out in 2014, these things have just been dominating the games charts. They are huge, huge hits. And they've often been reviewed uh, re reasonably well, at least at the beginning of the franchise. But they're just, they're, they're kind of, they're scare experiences that are aimed at teenagers. And because teenagers now all have phones and often have uh, some disposable income that they can throw at, at, at games, right? Like, obviously, there was going to be at some point a, a kind of a an IP, a franchise, a cultural phenomenon that built up through that platform. And this is it. And what Hollywood is showing us uh, with this and with a, a bunch of other movies this year is that this sort of thing that us olds, and we're not even that old, but that us olds don't even really understand or, or get, and that frankly, the studio makers behind this movie didn't even necessarily see coming, at least at this scale. I think they thought they had a hit on their hands. I don't think they thought they had an $80 million movie on their hands. And in some ways, this is good. In some ways, this is the sort of thing that all of us who want younger people to be going to see movies, and two, want them to be doing so like at, like, you know, in theaters, we should say like, this is, this is a good thing. And, and Hollywood is figuring out how to reach younger viewers. And the way they're doing it is by adapting toy properties and video games. And it is really interesting to me that in the year of 2023, probably the top two biggest box office earners of the year are going to end up being Barbie and Super Mario Brothers, which are age old continued successes in the kind of toy and game uh, department. And probably the biggest surprise of the year, the, the biggest upside relative to what was expected going in the night before it opened, will end up being Five Nights at Freddy's, which is a modern game franchise. That's something different. That is that is a, a sign that there that even though the old IPs may be drying out and that uh, the Marvel Universe may be on its way to something less like cultural dominance, there's new stuff out there and Hollywood is figuring out how to adapt it and turn it into something uh, that the kids want to go see. Alyssa, should we be happy that the kids are going to see bad things so long as they're going to see things, period? <laughs> yeah, I think we should. And I think there are two elements of optimism that Hollywood should take from the success of these video game and sort of video game-like movies, right? And I include in that something like Free Guy, the HBO adaptation of The Last of Us. I think what we're seeing in the successes of these movies and also toy movies like Barbie is two things. First, that people are still capable of seeing movies as events that they want to experience collectively. And second, that people who are big fans of video games still crave the cultural validation of getting a either film or television adaptation of that property, in part because it provides that sort of collective experience and the exposure of something they love to a wider culture of people who aren't necessarily going to participate in the game itself. And so, you know, I think the the return of the event movie is probably the biggest cause of optimism, especially for, I think, for people like the three of us who have spent the past three and a half years saying, like, we really, really hope the movies are going to come back. But I think even more for Hollywood, it should be, you know, a kind of a relief that 
even the people who spend most of their time in this sort of rising industry that is, I think, going to be a significant competitor for movies and television still kind of want that movie experience. You know, there's something validating about having something you love projected on a really big screen and advertised to people who don't know about this thing you love. And the idea that the movies still have cachet and power is something that has really been in doubt over the past couple of years. And so, you know, yeah, I hope the Youngs eventually like better things. But in the meantime, I am glad that they appear bought into the core idea that going to the movies is exciting and having the thing that you love recognized by Hollywood as sort of worthy of adaptation is exciting. A few weeks ago, we had Alyssa uh, report from a toy fair uh, about her experiences there. From the toy fair, excuse me. And she told us all about what was coming. And I like I. I mean, I'm I'm a little bit joking, but I'm also not entirely joking when I say like that sort of thing is just interesting on its own if you're into culture. But that also tells us what the tastemakers and power brokers of 42 years from now are going to have been into when they were children and what they are going to want to uh, take and transform into, you know, a, a bigger, more expansive experience. No, I think that's absolutely right. Yeah, I mean, it's going to something like the Toy Fair is fascinating because you're just sort of marinating in consumption. But, you know, I, I spent a bunch of time hanging out with folks who have built this, what's effectively like an AI-powered robotic companion for kids. And a bunch of the people involved with it come out of the world of animation. And so they are kind of preempting the idea, like they're packaging the companion sort of with an entire story universe, right? And I would bet that we start seeing a lot more, you know, sort of full product integration that way, right? Where, you know, it's not so much like, the, yes, something like Barbie continues to be used to sell toys, but also you have these very sort of, you know, content rich toys that are presented as part of a multimedia universe. And so, you know, sort of they go hand in hand together. I'm very excited about the eventual AI Axolotl movie. It will be adorable. The uh, The AI companion that I'm talking about, by the way, is called Snorble, and he looks like a tiny ghost. He doesn't actually have a gender. I just like, he seems like a creature, and so you end up assigning a gender to him. The big point here for me, uh, again, is the, the, the finances of Hollywood have worked very well for a very long time. And the way those finances were primarily driven was by theatrical grosses, right? Like you make your biggest chunk of money on the movie that comes out in the theater and then you make lesser chunks of money elsewhere and it all adds up to a big pool of money that you swim around in with your supermodels and whatnot. And the thing that has been most frustrating and most fascinating to me about the last three years or so of the business is so many people have been like, you know, we don't need that. We don't need that thing, that big theatrical thing. We're going to get away from that. This is one reason why I am fascinated by what Peacock and Universal are doing here because they are building, particularly in the horror space, they are doing this thing where they are releasing movies theatrically and on Peacock uh, that have decent branding and decent awareness uh, without really, I think, sacrificing much theatrical revenue for what what they're making up elsewhere, right? So, you know, they did this with the the last two Halloween movies by David Gordon Green, Halloween Kills and Halloween Ends. They did it with the new Exorcist movie, Exorcist the Believer. Uh, and they did it with Five Night 
Nights at Freddy's, and Five Nights at Freddy's is the biggest hit of all of them. And the thing that Five Nights at Freddy's calls to mind for me is actually the Gentleminions craze from... Was that last year, right? That was yes. that that was like, you know, kids dressing up and go, we're going to the movies, we're going to dress up like gentle minions, and we're going to have fun at the movie theater. And that's kind of what this feels like. There were definitely a bunch of people wearing Five Nights at Freddy's masks and stuff. I wouldn't be able to pick those people out of a lineup if you, if you were if you put five random costumes in front of me, I would not be able to pick which one was from Five Nights at Freddy's, but like, it's a thing. It's a thing, and, and the kids are into it, and that is... Uh, it's uh, the I bear masks great. that look kind of like Chuck E. Cheese. I don't know what any of that means. The the last... This sounds exactly like that movie Willy's Wonderland that starred Nick Cage and was terrible, but this movie sounds like it's just as terrible and doesn't even have Nick Cage in it, which is like, uh, no offense, kids. Enjoy your movie. I'm glad you're having fun. Come back and, and see some better stuff, but... You know, I'm glad I'm glad they're showing up just on general principle. But Sonny, also part of what you're speaking to is the value of having a mixed delivery system with different audiences, right? I mean, we've talked so much on this podcast about the collapse of all streams of revenue into a single stream of revenue. And this is a case where, in a weird way, Peacock's smallness may be a benefit because it doesn't yes. cannibalize the theatrical profits. But you do have probably a very distinct audience there who you then have something special to give to them. Yeah. And you build a library for them. Yeah. You're right to pick out Gentle Minions as a predecessor here, but also Barbie, because Barbie was a dress-up-and-go-with-your-friends event. It was something a little more than a movie, even though it was just a movie. And I think what you are seeing with some of these big hits is that movies are being turned. They're being turned by fans into these events that have just have sort of something more attached to them than just, oh, we went to see a movie on Friday night. And to some extent, what they are discovering, I hope, is that, you know what? It's fun to see movies with friends. Yes. And I, I say this a little bit self-promotionally, but also it's there's a reason that I say that at the beginning of every episode is because, in fact, movies are a thing you can totally enjoy on your own. And boy, I see a lot of movies by myself, more than most people. On the other hand, there is something special about forging a friendship in a community, overseeing uh, a particular movie or a set of movies or just movies in general. I've made so many friends in my life or made uh, made light friendships much deeper by seeing movies with people because it's a, it's just a, a fun thing to do to go experience a, a story with a, another person or a group of people and then to talk about it afterwards and find out about that person because their experience of that movie will be different than yours. It helps you like develop a theory of mind about your friends and learn about their tastes and their preferences and their worldview. And like, even if it's Gentle Minions, even if it's Five Nights at Freddy's, which sounds like it's kind of a terrible movie, even a terrible movie, you can learn something about your friends and you can have a good time. And this is something that Hollywood has in some ways kind of stumbled onto. But the fans, like the, the kids, the youngs who are going to see these things and are turning them into events, people want social experiences, especially now, especially th these days after the pandemic. And you can't get that on your phone. Can I also just say that um, going to see an intentionally bad movie with friends is its own special pleasure. Indeed. And should be embraced. Snakes on a plane, folks. Never saw it. All right, that brings me to the exit question, of course. Which is, is it a controversy or a controversy that bad movies are saving theaters? Peter. That's just the reality of how movies work, is that a lot of these movies are bad, and people sometimes like them, and I'll be mad about the bad movies when I have to see them. But you know what? I like that people go see the movies, because it keeps movie theaters open. Alyssa. 
It's an controversy. Thus it has always been and thus it will ever be. It's a controversy. Go enjoy your dumb movies, kids. Uh, <laughs> all right. Make sure to swing by Bulwark Plus on Friday for our bonus episode. We're going to be talking about the wonderful world of cinematic hitmen. From the darkly comic sort featured in Gross Point Blank to the highly efficient type from the John Wick movies and beyond, it's a cinematic type that shows no sign of slowing down anytime soon. Speaking of hitmen, on to the main event. The Killer, which I literally just got out of, so I'm still kind of processing it, pulling the curtain back slightly. Uh, between getting pneumonia and a flat tire in my car, uh, I was able to see this not not 15 minutes before this show started taping, so I am still working my way through it. Uh, here's the plot. Michael Fassbender plays the killer, the titular killer. He's out on a job. He, and while he's doing his job, he's talking about his theory of his job. And, you know, uh, the slow times are the hardest. And, uh, you know, he's not there to take sides. He's just doing a job. You know, he's not, this isn't ideology. It's not personal. Don't, don't show empathy. Spouts a bunch of platitudes. And then he pulls the trigger and botches his job. As a result of the botched job, uh, his uh, lady friend in the Dominican Republic is uh, the tr taken out by the uh, lawyer who sends a pair of hitmen to uh, clean up his handiwork. The killer then has to go figure out who these guys are and, and get revenge. He makes it personal. It's like his number one rule. Don't make it personal. And it just goes to show your rules don't mean much in this world, I guess. I don't know. Like I said, I'm still working through it. Alyssa, I know that Peter is going to be very into the finchery, you know, style of this movie and the, the you know, the sparseness of the soundtrack by Finch and Trent Reznor. Um, and I'm, I'm very, I'm very excited to hear him talk about it. But, uh, before we get to that, I want to get your take on this because we, you know, we, we discussed a lot during the eras, the run up to the eras episode that we do a lot of shows about cold calculating killers and that sort of thing. So we needed to do something lighter and poppier. Was this dark enough to make up for the lightness and the, <laughs> the poppiness of Taylor Swift? Did we, did we reach the nadir of humanity in this movie? I mean, is the inverse of the Arrows tour the killer, which is actually kind of a comedy, or is it like 12 Years a Slave, right? I mean, it's, uh, we, we need to define our polls here. Um, I enjoyed the killer because I mostly because of the parts where it's a comedy, right? I mean, in the sort of opening monologue about, you know, being a professional murderer, there is this moment when the killer, you know, he's sort of spouting aphorisms and he says, do what thou wilt shall be the whole of the law, said someone. And I just cracked up in the theater because this is um, a line written by Alistair Crowley, the British occultist and spy. And it's sort of the, the core idea of his made-up religion. Um, that's probably not right. His esoteric religion, um, known as the Lima, that theoretically was delivered to him by this being called Iwas, right? And it's like, and it's a sign that this movie is really, really poking fun at this sort of self-serious conception of, you know, of like the lone philosophical hitman, right? I mean, this is a guy who's just cobbled together a bunch of garbage to make himself seem, you know, seem serious. And he's a guy who clearly is smart, right? I mean, I forget, there's another line he has where it's like, he says it should be attributed to some poet, but it's not. So it's, it's a movie about someone who is smart, who has, you know, in the parlance of, you know, efficient killer movies, a particular set of skills, but also who's kind of dumb and self-justifying. <laughs> 
And, you know, the movie's combination of just like total mundanity, like, you know, ordering a key fob copier from Amazon and picking it up at a, you know, a Amazon storage locker um, and, you know, globetrotting murder nonsense is quite enjoyable, right? I mean, this is, you know, the actual Fincherian inverse of the arrows towards something like Zodiac, right? Which is just like, there is no escape, but like obsession will destroy you um, and you won't even solve who the killer is and you'll blow up your entire life. This no, is that's like, just the arrows tour. The actual inverse is seven, but. Um, <laughs> but I think this is minor Fincher, but it's quite funny, minor Fincher. It's it's much lighter than Fincher normally gets, you know, sort of in overall vibe. And I found its silliness fairly enjoyable. You know, I do think it's minor. Um, you know, the scene with Tilda Swinton is probably the best in the entire movie, you know, because Fassbender's character, you know, goes to dinner with this, you know, sort of, I, I think, you know, somewhat older, like higher level hit woman who was one of the people assigned to take out his girlfriend. And they just have this, you know, sort of funny conversation over dinner at a bar where Swinton's character is kind of playing for time and for, uh, you know, she's pretending that she is resigned to her fate when she's actually sort of trying to set him up. And again, it's very goofy, right? I mean, it's, you know, this combination of her ordering, you know, a flight of expensive whiskeys, including one from like a bottle that she keeps at this high-end restaurant and telling a story about like a sort of obscene, funny, you know, joke. And so that combination of kind of cool material professionalism and slick surfaces with just sort of dopiness is, it's a lot of fun. That whiskey, I believe, was a bottle uh, from Blackadder, which buys from different distilleries all over the world uh, and buys uh, basically special uh, special barrelings and then uh, sort of sells them at a premium. Um, so you can't tell exactly what was in it. I mean, it could have been any different type of scotch, but it's this sort of ultra unique, ultra expensive stuff, even if you're buying it at, at normal retail, much less if you're buying it, you know, at these kind of... Uh, I keep my bottle in the back of this restaurant prices. I saw the the bottle and I didn't recognize it, which suggested to me that it was astronomically expensive. I've, I have sometimes seen Blackadder bottles for as little as three or four hundred, but very frequently they're over a thousand dollars. Yeah. Alyssa, I take your point about the the humor of this movie, which it does have a sort of black mordant sensibility to it. But I I've this left me much colder than uh, something like Gone Girl, even. I found the whole tone kind of weirdly uh, off-putting, and I'm not 100% sure what I make of it. Again, this is why I like having more than 15 minutes to think about the movie before we start do talking. Do you think uh, that's intentional, though? Because in a weird way, I, I think I felt much like you did walking out of the theater. And then, you know, Peter and I, like, had some drinks and talked about the movie, and... I almost wonder if the off-puttingness of it is sort of the point, right? You know, that none of this is justifiable philosophically or otherwise. This is not an honorable way to live your life or even like a sustainable way. It's, yeah, you retreat to your sort of Costa Rican abode, but like, come on, <laughs> that's not going to last. That's no. fake. Well, his his whole self-justifying uh, mantra about his place in the world and how he reacts within it reminded me of 
um, Triangle of Sadness. Did we? I forget. Did we talk about Triangle we of Sadness? We did not so, because I don't think Alyssa or I saw it. Okay. Well, there's there's a scene in Triangle of Sadness where Woody Harrelson, who plays a communist yacht captain, and uh, a a Russian actor who plays a uh, a Russian capitalist garbage man. Um, start having a political argument. They start arguing about, you know, which system is best, communism or capitalism. And it devolves into them just shouting quotes at each other from like George Will or, or you know, uh, or uh, George Orwell, you know, like it's, or Karl Marx. And, and like, I think it's I've been to that just, dinner party. It's, it's, I mean, it's, it's like a hundred parties I've been to. It's like every day of life online where people have re- reduced their arguments down to a bunch of catchphrases and they they say them like a mantra instead of making an argument. Like here's all right, here's my line, here's your line. It's almost like a repartee. And that's what that's what his whole philosophy reminded me of. He sounded like he sounded like a, a midwit social media user who was trying to uh, rationalize himself to the world, which you know obviously I re- I identify with in no small portion. So maybe I'm just, maybe I'm just recoiling at the horror of the self in this movie. I don't know. Uh, Peter, what did you make of, of the movie? Get, give me the artistry of it. The, the artsy, the artsy critique. So obviously I loved this because I love David Fincher. David Fincher is my favorite working director and has been for years. This, however, was a, it was a real treat to see this in the theater because I wasn't able to see Mank in the theater. So this is the first time I have seen a David Fincher movie in a movie theater since 2014 when Gone Girl came out. And it's just such a delight to see his absolutely perfect, polished to a, to a fault images on screen. And they're almost, they're so precise and so slick and so carefully crafted in every little moment that it's almost a joke at this point. And if you know anything about how Fincher makes his movies, uh, just the ultra, ultra obsessiveness with which he, uh, with which he shoots everything, it's just, it just warms my heart to see someone who is so, so careful about every single frame, almost to the point where it's like, where he's like daring you to find the one pixel's worth of of the frame that's out of place. And you can't because there isn't any of it because it's so perfect. There's a my favorite David Fincher moment that I have ever uh, experienced, like seen and not experienced, but like seen from behind the scenes was actually from Alien 3 um, and the behind the scenes uh, movie that goes along with uh, some of the later DVDs. You can see him watching a a, a the effects test for a shot when an alien bursts through like a guy's head and there's a spatter onto the wall, right? And it's just, the shot is just this one quick spatter onto the wall. And there's Fincher with the two guys who like set up the device that shoots the stuff onto the wall. And he's not really looking at them. He's just like walking around in circles, not talking to anybody, really kind of muttering to himself, but out loud. And he just goes, yeah. I could shoot that. I could shoot that 50 times. I could shoot that 100 times. It's just like he like he's just sort of letting everybody know you're going to shoot this a thousand times until I get the exact perfect alien brain blood spatter on the wall that I think looks exactly right. Like there's any difference like anyone will be able to notice except he notices and it's right. It's real. And that's why his movies feel so, so comfortingly and almost shockingly perfect and polished. And then the other thing that this movie does is that it is very funny. And I, I, I appreciated this as 
the clearest expression of Fincher's uh, very dark, very bleak, very mean, in some ways even to his viewers, uh, sense of humor. Because this is not just a movie about a hitman. This is a movie about the absolute pathetic, empty nihilisticness of life in general and the, uh, like a life spent not really doing very much, thinking you're awesome, having like some sort of complete bullshit philosophy for it. And then it turns out you're a screw up. You can't even do the one thing that you're supposed to do well, right? You break all your rules. This is, I've, I've read some complaints about this movie that like, wait, it doesn't make any sense that he keeps saying like he's got all these rules and then he doesn't follow them. And we never actually see him being like actually all that good at his job, which is not exactly right. He's quite good at like the the bit in which he takes out the dog and the the weightlifting killer in in Florida. He's actually proves himself to be reasonably effective, even if even if a, a little bit loose. Right. But no, this is a movie about how it's very, very explicit, I think, and very intentional that this killer, who is supposed to be the best, the coolest, the never fail, never screw it up, methodical killer, the first thing we see him do is screw it up. And that there's never a moment in which he just follows his rules and they actually work. And it's just funny because he has this self-conception of being the dark, grisly, kind of cool hitman who we see in comic book, you know, in, in, I mean, this was based on a comic book, right, of, of kind of, of Pulp Fiction. And then the movie is like, that's a ridiculous creation. That's totally ridiculous. And then you meet the Tilda Swinton version, which is a different kind of ridiculous, right? And you, the interaction between the two is, I mean, it's such a great scene. The other thing this movie does then is, Sonny, you said you left cold. I think that was very intentional. The finale in which the our, our killer finally meets the person at the end of this long chain, this long exercise and like finding the next guy and finding the next guy and killing each one of them. The finale is uh, it's too short and it's uh, without spoiling things for our folks here. It does not resolve in a way that is traditionally satisfying because this movie is like throwing the idea of of that there is satisfaction in any of this back in the face of its viewers and it is it is about the like all the ways that all the things you find that bring comfort to yourself all the systems you have the the ph philosophical justifications the 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 objects the beautiful house the whatever it is you know what it's all empty and it's all worthless, and there's nothing in this cruel and stupid world. But you know what? We can make jokes, yeah, and like, and find some way, right? Like, and that's it. Like, that's this is that's this movie is. It's yeah. kind of funny how how empty the world is. Well, and also that the final scene is the killer bringing his, you know, his girlfriend's like perfectly made cup of coffee with a, like a orange, you know, a orange peel garnish. But like, that's supposed to make up for the fact that he got her in a position and inculcated her in a code that led to her being just brutally beaten and landed in the hospital, right? Like it's, it's so, it's, you know, for a movie by a guy who cares incredibly about objects and material culture, the final scene of that movie is an argument that objects and material culture have no moral significance, right? That like imbuing them with moral significance is a mistake. And it's, it works incredibly well. It pays tribute to the beauty of those surface objects while also letting you see how little value they have. Like they, how they or don't how make- how little moral people, content they have, yes. right? Like I mean, how, how they don't make people, they don't make you happy and they don't make you good. Yeah. Um, I also think the best way to think of this movie, and I said this to you, Peter, as we were discussing it, 
it is in many ways um, David Fincher making a John Grisham movie, right? It's set in this sort of denatured New South for the most part. You know, this idea of New Orleans as a place with a thousand restaurants, only one menu, a sort of like ugly, anonymized part of Florida. You even have this, you know, part of the Florida sequence is, you know, this totally underdeveloped meeting between um, the killer and this corrupt lawyer who turned him into a hitman, right? Which is like, it's the plot of the firm. <laughs> um, and so thinking of it as, you know, Fincher kind of looking at Grisham and being like, what if that but weirder? Um, and again, like down to the recurring joke about the killer using these passports that are in the names of characters from classic television sitcoms. Like John Grisham's characters, whenever they have aliases, are really like sort of terrible and obviously alias-like. I mean, just it feels very much like Fincher playing in that genre in the same way that he sort of, you know, made Gone Girl, which is a very satisfying thriller, but is also like in the tradition of women's pulp fiction, right? So it's, you know, I, I don't think people necessarily think of Fincher as a playful director, but you do kind of see some of that genre dabbling in his more recent work in a way that's quite enjoyable. I mean, I like Mank much less than you two, but even so, it's like, it's nice to see someone of his caliber and meticulousness playing. I mean, you know, we talk about how probably my favorite working director is Steven Soderbergh, in part because of his willingness to kind of try everything, right? And the combination of Soderbergh is like, I'll try anything and I'm going to do it twice a year and really fast and with an emerging sort of Fincherian, like, hmm, maybe I'll try a bunch of things and I'll do it like slowly and very meticulously. It's like, it's a fun era of cinema to be living in. The sitcom alias gag also recalls Fight Club in which uh, every time Edward Norton's character goes to a support group, he puts on a hi, my name is a sticker that always has his uh, a different name. And each one is the name of a character from one of the Planet of the Apes movies. So like it's Cornelius or, or whoever it, each time. This movie actually really reminded me of Fight Club in many ways, a, a movie that is underrated for its humor and for uh, for making fun of the in its audience in a lot of ways. And that movie has been misinterpreted by a lot of the fans as uh, a movie about how cool it is to be Tyler Durden and Brad Pitt. And yes, of course, Brad Pitt looks really cool in that movie. That is the point. And it's also totally ridiculous. And there are all these little tiny bits of incredible incredibly dry, incredibly bleak humor. You know, the bit where Edward Norton tries to pick up his bag and uh, the the guy at, at, at the airport and the airport baggage guy is like, you know, it was ticking. And most of the time when it's ticking, it's a dildo, <laughs> right? And it's just, and like, or, you know, as a Tyler Durden in the airport, uh, the in the airplane, as I pass a question of etiquette, shall I give you the ass or the crotch? And then we see him give uh, give Edward Norton's character the the rear end, and as he passes a flight attendant, it's the front end, right? This sort of like subtle and yet not very subtle suggestion of a kind of flexible sexuality that right, is that's just like oh, that's funny and it's clever and it's but it's also not sitting there saying hey, here's a joke. That's it's not that right, and this movie doesn't have jokes in the normal sense. Instead, it just has all of these great self like intentionally self undermining uh bits about 
uh, about its character and about the kind of nominal grimness of its world, while also while also kind of admitting, yeah, you know what, this is a movie made by David Fincher, who is in fact this this like bizarrely obsessive, hyper meticulous, you know, uh, weirdo director who I don't know if he lives by a code, but I would like to hear his inner monologue. At yeah, some this point. is a movie about how a man must have a code, but that code can still be stupid. <laughs> uh, can we can we just talk very briefly about the lighting in this movie, which I thought was real interesting in the sense that uh, it is like many movies made these days, very dark, but it's legibly dark. Yes, in a way that a lot of movies these days are not. A lot of the uh, yeah, I, I went to see. God, what was it? I went to see Pet Cemetery Bloodlines. It's terrible <laughs> Pet Cemetery yeah, prequel. Come sequel on, man. Thing. You should have known better uh, than at, see Pet Cemetery Bloodlines. Nah, it's called Pet Cemetery Bloodlines. What are you doing with your life? I saw it at Fantastic Fest. It was free. I got to it see it early. It was not fantastic. And, and it was uh it was bad. It was very bad. And uh, everyone should be ashamed uh who made that movie. But the uh but like there are scenes in that movie that are dark and they're shot they're shot at night with you know, I assume digital and like literally just could, you could not see what was happening on the screen to the point where I just literally did the like Jerry Seinfeld throw my hands up and like wanna walk out sort of thing. I was so I was so annoyed. And this movie again, it's very dark and like there there's a there's this uh kind of set piece fight right in the middle of the the movie that is almost shot in silhouette, but you can see everything that's happening in it. And this is like, I wish you could just give this movie to every director and be like, all right, if you're gonna do the whole dark digital photography thing, you either do this or you do the Miami Vice shootout scenes, but you don't do whatever bullshit has been happening in movies for the last five years outside of those two examples, because it's bad. But it's not just lighting, Sunny, right? I mean, it's um, it's costuming. There's this you know ongoing joke about how you know, the killer's disguise is essentially that of German tourist, right? So he wear, but he, so he wears a lot of khaki and this bucket hat that make him very visible in the sort of nighttime chase scene when he's fleeing from this Bosch assassination. In the uh, the abandoned WeWork, another great joke where he is hanging out, uh, setting up for this hit in Paris. You know, he's wearing light clothes a lot of the time. Um, in the Florida scene, he's wearing darker clothes, but it's also the scene where he's least in control, right? He, you know, and so you see it in silhouette, you can see what's going on, but also, you know, he is sort of least clear on what the outcome is going to be. In the scene with Tilda Swinton, you know, she's wearing this, you know, really immaculate white wrap coat and then, you know, sort of a cream blouse. And so she is just very visible in these nighttime scenes. And so, you know, it's, Yes, it's about lighting, but it's also about picking, you know, actors and clothing where there will be visual contrast. Fassbender just has this incredible silhouette himself, right? This yeah. very distinctive, right? He, apart from his clothes, that uh, that Fincher gives you all of these shots of. And this is actually one of the ways that he makes that Florida fight, that incredibly dark fight in the weird Florida house legible, is that it's shot in silhouette. But before you get into that house... And before that fight starts, you see a bunch of shots of Fassbender that are in silhouette that are where we just hold on his nose and we hold on his uh, sort of a, on medium shots of his the upper part of his body and even his whole body leaning up against his truck so that the movie is visually teaching you to look for his silhouette. And it is giving and it is showing you what that is and imprinting that on your mind so that when that start that silhouette starts to move much faster and the, the action becomes, you know, a little more complex 
complex to follow, your eyes can see, oh, here's the guy with Michael Fassbender's nose and with this particular hat rolled this particular way along his head and this particular shoulder line, uh, you know, along his jacket. And so, again, it's like it's anticipating that we're going to take you into a, a part that's like this is dark and it's fast and you're going to have to be able to follow this. But the movie goes way out of its way to adjust you to that beforehand. Just And this is this is Fincher. It's not just that every shot is perfect. It's that the visual language the and the, the setups and the development of the visual language throughout each scene is so sharp and so careful and just does so much work to kind of to guide you and to to guide the way that you see what is happening on screen i love it i i just want to live in david fincher's perfect empty nihilistic uh, like soulless world for the rest of my life uh, Alyssa, you mentioned WeWork. Uh, one last thing, and then we'll we'll get out of here. The WeWork setting for the the whole first sequence is great, but also you know there's the the Amazon sequence where he basically figures out how to hack locks, you know, just by getting RFID reprogrammers, and then the way he uses DoorDash to sneak into the. It is this is and this movie, of course, is going to be on. Most people will see this movie on Netflix. Very few people will. So it is it is in a very real way about the ways in which online culture and the the idea of easiness the ease of access getting things more simply has made us all sloppier more da- more dangerous like less secure i i'm i'm kind of fascinated by that undercurrent of it which again is one reason i i would like to i'd like to watch this again i'd really like to read the the screenplay I, it's just so i could get that whole narrative monologue over Overcoat. One thing to flag with that Amazon real quick is just the way that it is presented on screen and the fact that you that Fincher has developed a visual language for showing people what's happening on a phone that isn't just here's an over the shoulder shot of somebody messing with something on their phone. And we also saw that in House of Cards, the Netflix series that he helped uh, develop and direct the first couple of episodes, which was one of the first series to show people using text messages in a way that was legible for viewers to follow without just having to watch text messages pop up on a phone screen, you know, in somebody's hand. And that was the shot. Yeah. And it's not just that it's sort of the internet economy, um, because we have all of these shots of the killer being sort of uh, enabled by the decline of service work, right? I mean, the fact that you have the, you know, automatic drop of the keys at the car rental, the self-service, um, you know, storage rental place. You know, the one time that you you have interactions with service workers in three key locations, you have, you know, the his perpetual airport check-ins. You have the scene at the bank where he's sort of closing out his account. And it, I mean, it used to be that if you had a, you know, a significant client, you'd have a relationship with the banker. And instead it's, you know, this totally sort of anonymized transaction where the teller is trying to inject, you know, she's trying to hold on to him. She's like, we'd love to talk to you about our private wealth management services, but there's no, you know, like, there's no hook there. There's nothing convincing. There's no actual relationship. And the one sort of customer service relationship that we see in an extended way is, you know, his interactions with the cab driver who drove the assassins to, you know, his house in Costa Rica. And it, it the idea, you know, the sort of sick joke is that that like personal service work is lethal for the person doing it. And then the total anonymization of the economy is what 
permits the killer to do what he does. Yeah, I mean, and it's very much built into the the the, meta, the mega narrative, right? Which is all about finding the layers of uh, like the people behind the people behind the people and how disconnected he is in his work from the person who is benefiting from it. And when he finally meets that person, both he and that person are like, what are we doing here? We have no idea, like... Even though they're clearly like one person is paying for a thing and the other th person is doing that thing, there's just this giant gap of disconnection, of inability to have anything like a, a human conversation or relationship, despite the fact that one is you know paying for the other person to do like a, a quite complex and difficult service, murdering people. All right. What do we think? Thumbs up or thumbs down on The Killer, Peter? Thumbs up. One of my favorite movies of the year. Alyssa? Thumbs up. Thumbs thumbs up. I, 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 you're gonna have to come back to me in a week on this one. Remind me to remind Sonny, me to thumbs revisit up. this. Vote I, for I it. I think it's I think it's probably a thumbs up, but oh, this uh, is the no more probably mixed, about this. More mixed than I more mixed than I would like to be with a David Fincher movie, whose movies I generally really like. I like Gone Girl, one of my favorite movies of the year. Fight Club, one of my favorite movies of the 90s. Uh, but this this one, uh, I don't know, a little, little cold. That is it for today's show. Many thanks to our audio engineer, Jonathan Siri, without whom this program would sound much worse. Make sure to head over to Bulwark Plus for our bonus episode on Friday. Tell your friends. A strong recommendation from a friend is basically the only way to grow podcast audiences. If you don't grow, we'll die. If you did not love today's episode, please complain to me on Twitter at Sunny Bunch. I'll convince you that it is, in fact, the best show in your podcast feed. See you guys on Friday.